Gallup does a poll every year of the 15 institutions in the country that uh, really govern our society. Every one of the the 15 continues to go down, except the military. I think that speaks to the reality of what people think of their veterans uh, today. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us is former United States Secretary of Defense and two-term senator, Chuck Hagel. He's here at the Kennedy School as a joint visiting fellow with the Institute of Politics in the Belfer Center. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So uh, I wanted to start off with my most important question, which has always intrigued me. Um, Why Chuck instead of Charles? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. (laughs) The reason for that is uh, I lived in little towns in western Nebraska, and we would move like every two years. I was the oldest of four boys. My father worked for a a group of investors that would go into small towns and buy lumber yards that were failing. They'd send him into the the little town and get it back on its feet, and he'd move on to another town. So Mm -hmm. before I graduated from high school, I had gone to eight different schools and lived in seven little towns. So um, I think in the third town I lived in, fourth, third town, um, we moved in the summer, and I wanted to see if I could play baseball. So I rode my bicycle over to a baseball field in this little town, and they were practicing. It was a little league, and uh, I was watching on the outside of the fence, and then I came back the next day, and I watched, and I came back the third day, and I watched. Finally, the the coach had noticed, had noticed me and said, uh, He said, "Uh, young man, do you want to play baseball? And I said, yes, sir. He said, "Uh, okay, go go out into the field. And I started to run out there, and he said, what's your name? And my full name is Charles Timothy Hagel. Well, I've been to so many schools that my report card, Charles Timothy Hagel, and some people called me Tim, and some people called me Charles. And so I said, Charles Timothy Hagel, and he looked at me kind of like, that's a bit officious for some little kid. He said, okay, Chuck, go out there and take left field. And that's how the name stuck. Well, it's uh, amazing because you, you see so many people in higher office, they will still go by their, uh, you know, their little league name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, the Charles Timothy comes out, the more officious name comes out in uh, in public. Was that a conscious choice? Uh, well, I just stuck with it. I remember going home that, uh, that evening and we were having dinner and my parents and my brothers and I said, by the way, I'm changing my name. And my brothers, of course, as brothers do, started laughing and making fun of me and my mother and father were intrigued with that and said oh really you're changing your name uh what's what's your new name and i said chuck from now on i want to be known as chuck and so my brothers uh, again laughed and so uh but eventually they 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 call you still still call me chuck my older brothers would certainly never have gone along with that (laughs) i think they still call me matthew unlike anybody else in the world uh so fast forward a little bit and uh the year is i think was in 1967 um you chose to enter military service and uh, you did it despite the fact that, unlike a lot of people in that in in your generation, um, you had the option to to go to college to get out of uh, get out of service. Um, why was it so important for you to serve? Well, actually, I had been to three colleges, and um, 
it was not working out very well for me. And I was working full-time and was called home by the draft board. And in those days, Vietnam was just building up to the peak of 550,000 soldiers, American soldiers in Vietnam. So the draft was taking everybody. And the draft board called me home and said, uh, you've got four to five months to get back into a college or we're going to have to uh, put you on the draft list, put you, classify you as 1A. Mm-hmm. And I just said, well, I'm not going to go back to college. I'm not getting anything out of it. I, I really want to serve in the Army. What's the soonest I could go? They said, well, we, we have the next uh, bus leaving from Omaha. Then it'll go to Fort Bliss, Texas for basic training um, the end of this month. I said, well, put me on it. So I volunteered to, to go into the draft. My brother Tom, uh, who was uh, a month behind me in, in basic training, advanced infantry training, Vietnam, so on, um, he did the same thing. Mm-hmm. What was it about military service that, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine there were a lot of people uh, around then who were eager to run over to <laughs> Vietnam uh, or join the Army, certainly. Um, what was it about it that that you know uh, drew your interest? Well, you're right. There were uh, there were very few people uh, wanting to to go in. Everybody was trying to stay out right. and uh, get deferments, and a lot of different deferments were available. Um, well, my father had been in World War II, had been overseas for two and a half years in the South Pacific, and all my uncles had been in World War II. Growing up in little towns in western Nebraska. The American Legion Club and the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the VFW Club, were really kind of the center of the social activity. So I'd grown up around very patriotic people and the Fourth of July and and uh, uh, people marching in parades. And my family was patriotic. And I thought, well, you know, America's at war. Um, this is part of my duty, I think, uh, and responsibility. Yeah. I, I didn't know a lot about the war. Um, why we were there, what we were doing there. Uh, but I knew America was at war, and I, I knew that they needed people. So I just thought it was the right thing to do, and um, I thought it was a responsibility I had. Now, uh, fast forward again uh, a few decades. You had had a fairly uh, successful career in the private sector, um, and you made a similar, if not the same, choice um, in that you put that aside to uh, enter public service and, and run for Senate in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see that as a, a similar type of choice, giving up one thing for, for another, or was it an obvious yeah. next step? Well, I think everybody has to play their own game, their own way, on their own time. I've been very fortunate in life. I've had a lot of opportunities come my way. I uh, actually had been in and out of government. Uh, I'd been in and out of government before I ran for the Senate. I'd never mm-hmm. run for office. I uh, was deputy administrator of the Veterans Administration under Ronald Reagan for a couple of years, and I was chief of staff to a congressman in the 70s uh, for about five years. Uh, it it uh, served um, as also President H.W. Bush's director of the G7 Economic Summit. And so in and out of uh, government service, mm-hmm. but never long periods of time. And then I would go back into business and do things. But I always thought that uh, if I had an opportunity to run for office, I'd like to do that. Um, I could have 
lived the rest of my life without doing that and had a very uh, successful, happy life. Um, but you get to a point where if things kind of are, are aligned, the stars are aligned and the orbit looks like it could be right, your business, your family, your age, opportunities, then you need to look at it. And, and I did. And I was 50 years old when I ran for the Senate. Uh, first uh, time I had run for office. And uh, I, uh, I thought always if I was uh, going to run for office, it would be for the Senate. The House, because of two-year terms, you're constantly running for re-election. Mm -hmm. Six years in the Senate gives you a chance to, you're only one, one of 100. It gives you a chance to really do something as soon as you get there. Mm -hmm. And of course, it and, has a greater impact on foreign policy. Everything. I don't know, is that your uh, intention? Exactly right. It was, I went right on the Foreign Policy uh, Committee, Foreign mm -hmm. Relations Committee, and the Intelligence Committee, and some of those committees, because that was my area that I was very interested in. I was on the Banking Committee. Mm -hmm. um, and so I said, right before I was elected to my first term, actually, it was 20 years ago, the next, uh, next year. Uh, next mm -hmm. year. And um, when I, I entered in uh, January of 2017, but this year, uh, 2016, is my 20th anniversary uh, for my first mm -hmm. uh, victory. But I said, if the good people in Nebraska would elect me, uh, and if I do a good job, uh, I would hope to be reelected. And then after two terms, that's probably enough. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always believed these jobs need new energy, new focus, new ideas. Sure. And so um, I didn't sign a pledge, or, and I thought about running again after the second term. But um, people wanted me to, and I appreciated that. But I, I thought 12 years was enough, and I wanted to go do some uh, other things. I had been, I was fortunate, reelected uh, uh, in 2002 with the largest majority in the history of Nebraska, mm -hmm. with about 84% of the vote. And so you know, going out after 12 years, and that was a very uh, really historic 12 years from 1997 to 2009. You think of all that happened in that uh, that mm -hmm. period. And then I went on to do some other things as well. Well, some other things. Uh, obviously, you became Secretary of Defense mm -hmm. for uh, a couple of years under the uh, Obama administration. Uh, I think out of the 25 secretaries of defense in the history of the United States, mm -hmm. 18 of them had had some prior military experience. I'm curious if you think that that's an important or an important experience to have going into that job. Well, I think um, first, uh, each of us uh, in life are products of our experiences and our environment. And I think uh, that kind of experience does help you as Secretary of Defense. I don't think it's indispensable. I don't think it's a requisite. Uh, it was helpful to me, I mean, especially if you've been through war. Not, and not many of the secretaries of defense had actually been in war. Um, I, I, I found it helpful. Uh, in the Senate, I did. I found it helpful actually in business, uh, but certainly as secretary of defense because the secretary of defense, having worn the uniform and been to war, you, you can identify what these men and women have to deal with and what they do, especially in war, the suffering and the, and the immense tragedy of it all. So uh, it helped me. And I, there wasn't a day that went by as Secretary of Defense, and a lot of this was in the Senate, too, that I didn't draw from some experience in Vietnam mm -hmm. um, 
uh, as it applied to some decision I was about ready to make or or some thinking about an issue or, or whatever uh, whatever it might be. But mm-hmm. it was helpful to me. You mentioned before uh, the community that you had in Nebraska, the um, the one where there was a you know a, a VFW and this this kind of idea of public service or uh, military service being a, an ideal to strive for. Um, do you think that that is still true in the United States by and large? Um, is it true in smaller pockets, or has that gone away entirely? <laughs> That's a very good question. I think it's, it's, it's a particularly relevant question today. When you look at our uh, very bitter, polluted political environment that has uh, produced such bitterness and anger and discontent in our politics, our leaders, our dis- distrust society has for our political leaders, for our institutions, for Washington. Uh, and by the way, that carries into banking, that carries into all institutions except the military. Um, I think it's hard for young people today to um, come back to that point about service of some kind. Although I think our young people today are just as dedicated to the right things for our country, just as committed to our country as my generation or, or any generation. Each generation is captive to an environment and to a set of dynamics that uh, that's not of your choosing. So you respond to that at that time. Mm-hmm. We've had generations that live through peacetime. So I actually think because of so many big issues that are going on out there today in the world and so many problems and, and complications and so much negativity about everything. I actually think that that will produce in our young people um, a higher sense of purpose. Uh, not everybody, but a lot of people, uh, young people, uh, wanting to serve in some way. And serving your country isn't necessarily just in uniform. I mean, uh, the civilian government people, uh, uh, diplomatic service, so many ways to do this. And at state levels, and by the way, uh, uh, and, and at local levels, city levels. But I think the patriotism, in, in one sense, uh, has not been diminished, but I think a, a, a sense of purpose has been. You mentioned small towns, small communities versus big ones. I think just automatically, if you're from a small community, you're conditioned by that small community, and, and there's just a tighter knit because you know most of the people in the, in the community. Bigger cities are, are different. I mean, it's in many ways kind of a foreign land, and you've got different elements in a big city. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's just it's the way it is. Mm-hmm. So I think the smaller communities probably more naturally imbue a sense of purpose and commitment to the country and so on. It doesn't mean they're more patriotic. It certainly doesn't mean they're better, but I, I think that's all part of it. But I have tremendous confidence in in this generation, this next generation coming up, uh, our young people. And I think in many ways, your generation will be better prepared to deal with these big issues than any generation in the history of man. And I, and I think you're just as committed and I think you're just as patriotic as previous generations. Relatively recently, the headlines uh, coming out of California, uh, the California National Guard was asking for the repayment of bonuses that had been delivered to uh, military members who had served in Iraq and and uh, elsewhere. Uh, I found it interesting because 
from a pure uh, financial perspective, of course the government's going to seek to try and get money back that it improperly dispersed. Mm -hmm. And I tried to think about if this wasn't veterans, if this was postal workers, or if this had been some other group, would there have been the same outrage or would the outrage have been spun around? I'm curious for your for your perspective on that, uh, especially considering you know where things are in terms of the, the role of the military in today's society. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's really an excellent question because I think you're onto something. Uh, let's start with uh, your last point about the respect for the military today in America. It's probably as high as it's certainly been since World War II. And Gallup does a poll every year of the 15 institutions in the country, governing institutions, the major institutions that uh, really govern our society. And the military is one of those. Uh, Every one of the, the 15 except the military continues to go down in trust and confidence and respect every year except the military. The military has maintained that 76 to 78 to 80 percent approval, confidence, and trust. So I think that speaks uh, to to the reality of what people think of their veterans uh, today. Now, to your question, um, there may well be a difference in, in if it was a different set of government employees. And, and military essentially is a government employee. And um, I think that um, you're right that probably the edge there in the public affection uh, of the veteran and appreciation for what the veteran has done uh, probably uh, makes it uh, uh, more clearly this kind of a thing come down on the, on the favor of the veterans. Um, that was a very unfortunate situation that because – until we get into all of it, and you're going to have to review case by case by case, because mm-hmm. um, I do think in many cases, veterans, um, the, uh, they weren't veterans then, they were uh, National Guard, were taken advantage of and not explained to fully on what their obligations were or what the specifics were. And I do think that that, that, that happened in many, many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, were there cases where uh, the military people took advantage of it and, and, and probably understood, um, uh, probably. But I, I think the way it's being handled is, uh, is, is now is right. Uh, let's review everything. Let's stop everything right now. Uh, the more difficult issue is having to go back and those people that did pay back into the system who've already done that. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you go back and make them whole? Mm-hmm. And why 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 should they be penalized, sure. and the other people not? So that's another element of this. And to take that one step further, uh, if the idea was that these people who had served deserve this money, I, I can imagine that there might be some other veterans who uh, feel like, hey, I could have used that extra cash. Uh, you mentioned the high value that Americans put on the military as an institution, on veterans, et cetera. Does that actually translate into real support in terms of, you know, paying veterans uh, or paying military members a decent amount, um, and and actually supporting them once they leave the leave the military? Oh uh, well, it does very much, and I, and I think uh, our compensation packages today for our military are fair. Uh, I, I think the the salaries, the benefits, uh, 
mm-hmm. um, that uh, each of our military uh, members uh, now uh, receive uh, uh, is 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 very very good and very competitive uh, with commensurate jobs on the outside of government or the outside of the military, mm-hmm. um, and. At, that's as it should be. There was a time when it wasn't the case. And then afterward, the pensions, I think, are very fair. Uh, what, what I, uh, the changes that I proposed and should be proposed are it, the way it's set up now in the military, if you, if you don't spend 20 years minimum in the service, um, then you get no retirement pension. You get mm-hmm. no retirement benefits. Mm-hmm. I think that's wrong. Um, I think, like in pri- the private sector, that have companies that have uh, uh, retirement plans. If someone serves ten years, or I think there should be a cutoff. I don't think if you're in the military two four years, then you deserve a pension. Right. But uh, certainly, I don't think twenty years should be the cutoff. Maybe maybe ten is is the right. But if you serve ten, now you don't get the full. What you what you do at twenty, sure. but I still think if you put in ten years in the military, I think you're deserving of of, of some kind of of retirement uh, package. So that's being now debated and adjusted, and it needs to be. Well, Senator, or I'm sorry, Secretary Chuck Hagel, I apologize. Uh, it was wonderful having you on PolicyCast Thank today. Thank you so much for for coming and talking with us. Well, you you've hit uh, on some very important issues and topics, especially for. Uh, young people, uh, but our country. And I appreciate you bringing all those up, especially in today's environment where it's all kind of zaniness and craziness and, you know, what's wrong with the system and let's tear everything down. And uh, a certain amount of insanity prevails, unfortunately, and that's what we cover. Um, uh, when, Nothing to do with why you left, right? Well, <laughs> well that's another program. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again. Thank really you. Good job. It. Secretary Chuck Hagel is a former United States Senator and Secretary of Defense. He's here at the Kennedy School as a joint visiting fellow with the Institute of Politics and the Belfer Center. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader along with Natalie Montaner, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle, with help from Catherine Serafin on distribution. You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.